Well, good morning. It is great to be with you guys again this year. It's hard to believe it's our, our third year up here. And, uh, and so every, once, every year we get to see each other and uh, you all look older and so do I. So it's all, it's all, it's, <laughs> we're, we're just taking it a year at a time. But uh, we're thankful for, for your church and for your pastor and his wife. Um, God has given us a friendship that actually with the Nortons and, and with Elizabeth before she was a Norton um, and my family go way back and so uh, all the way back to high school. I went to high school with, um, with Mrs. Norton. Um, now she was younger than me so I, you know, uh, but we had, a, we, had a, uh, we had a good time uh, in New Hampshire and then I got to know Andrew, uh, Pastor Andrew when we were in college a little bit and, uh, and it's funny how our paths have crossed over the years and now here we are serving in Michigan, and I, I, I hope, I know you folks know this, but God has given you a wonderful pastor, and he's given you a wonderful pastor's wife and family, and I hope you don't take that for granted, um, that God has, has gifted you with um, a couple who desires to, to see the church here grow in Christ-likeness, not just numerically, I know they, th- that, that's part of it, but, but yes, they want to see the church grow, but they want to see you grow as individuals. They're invested in your lives, and they're invested in the community. One thing we were commenting on, uh, Dave Armstrong and I, were, was how, how your church, even in this community of Beaverton, has is, is, is been investing in your community. And that's an important thing. Uh, we walked around, and we're, we're strangers up here. We get to walk around um, once, once a year and, and talk to people. But as we talk to people, there are Doors that we knock on, on people that come to those doors and say, we know Beaverton Baptist. We, we know them because one person said to one of our ladies, they, they sponsor one of the Little League teams around here, right? And, um, and, and that makes a difference. And, and those little things that, that you do and your, your church does in your community, they make a difference for Christ. And so God is gonna, God's going to do a work in this church. I know he is doing a work in this church and in this community because of the faithfulness of you people here and we get to be a part of that. We get to come for a week. Um, and honestly, our goal is not to be seen or to be upfront or to, or to somehow um, take any of that glory. That goes to God and it goes to the people who faithfully serve here every, each and every week. So we're thankful for, for you and for your church. We've been thankful to get to know you over the last few years. And we are tired. <laughs> so we are, our kids, they rolled in last night. We went to the, the Loons game in Midland. And last night they all rolled in, and, and I think everybody was, was pretty, pretty tired because we worked them pretty hard. But uh, we have an awesome day of worshiping God with you. So without further ado, let's get to the word this morning. So I want to take your Bibles, if you have them, and open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite books of the Bible. And Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and I'll describe in a little bit a little of what he uh, the background of, of Philippians and what, what's going on here. But um, I want to start with this illustration because when, when I was growing up, early on, there was these commercials that came on television called Be Like Mike. Anybody remember the Like Mike commercials? Maybe it was even prior to me a little bit. But, um, but Like Mike, so Michael Jordan was, uh, was one of the, the top, you know, he was the top NBA player in the, in the world. And uh, all the commercials were Be Like Mike and so there was, uh, it was mostly Gatorade commercials, right? So you would drink Gatorade and you could be like Mike. And so I, all of us as a kid, I was like, I'm going to be like Michael Jordan. I'm going to play basketball like Michael Jordan. I can't, 
Never came close to even attaining to that level. Um, not even in, with uh, backyard basketball. It was, I was terrible. But like, be like Mike was the mantra. And all these kids of that generation, they all wanted to, to play basketball like Michael Jordan. And so that was what the, the, the commercial encouraged us to do. But as I look around, you know what I realized? All those kids who aspired to be like Mike, how come we don't have a lot of Michael Jordans rocking around? All those kids who, they drink all the Gatorade. You know, they, they bought all the Gatorade, they drink it, they bought the shoes, they got the, the Jordan shoes. How come we don't have a bunch of Michael Jordans walking around playing basketball? And I would submit that some of it is his natural, you know, you have a natural gifting, a natural ability to do those, do those things. But the second part of that is I don't think that most people who wanted to be like Mike were willing to put the effort and the dedication and the work into becoming like Michael Jordan. I don't think that they were willing to, to do the day in and day out routine of, 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 of drilling with the, with the basketball, of, of, of practicing their game, of eating the right things, of, of working out every day to, to maximize your, your jumping capacity, your shooting capacity, all those things. I don't think they were willing to do that. Because see, there's a lot of people who would say, I'd like to be like that. I want to... I would like to attain to that, but I don't necessarily want the work that goes with it. My, uh, my son, he's with us today. Sorry, Carter. He, he always gets pulled into these illustrations. But, um, you know, I, he started taking piano and cello lessons. And, and I, you know, I think, I think in his mind, he would love to be a concert-level pianist. He would love to be able to sit down and play something beautiful on the cello that, you, that would just fill concert halls and things like that. But it's been a little struggle at times, right, to, to get all that practice in, to do that daily, the, the day in and day out routine that it takes to be good at something. You know, excellence is something that you have to pursue in every area of your life. Not just when you walk on the, onto the court, not just when you want to sit down at the piano and play. It has to be your goal when you're eating and sleeping and working and playing. It dictates actions both on and off the court. It dictates all of our actions. In fact, people who become masters at what they do do so because that becomes the very air they breathe. This is true for sports. It's true for music. It's true in basketball, and it's true in our Christian life. Because I think if I were to ask all of you this morning, do you know what you would like to see yourself be spiritually? Can you think of, of maybe a model or an example in your life of somebody you say, that is what I would love to attain to. That is what I would love my walk with God to look like. You could probably come up with someone. It's easy to look into the future and say, that is what I want to be. But can I submit to you that just like those other things that we just talked about, there's not many who want to do what it takes to get there. We, we could say it this way. The battle for, Christian, or for a successful Christian life is fought in the moment-by-moment, day-by-day trenches of living and dying for God. I'll say that again. The battle for a successful Christian life is fought in the moment-by-moment, day-by-day trenches of living and dying for God. You know, I tell our young people, we get to go on a trip like this. Or, or do something exciting, or, or we go to a week at, at camp, uh, and, and those are the big, exciting moments. It's easy to live for God in those moments. 
It is. It's easy when the, when the pressure is there. But, but that's not the Christian life. If we're honest, the Christian life is lived in the ordinary. It's lived in the mundane day-to-day walking with God and doing the right thing and, and reading his word and fellowshipping with him. And those sometimes feel like the trenches of warfare. As you're in your, your Bibles here at Philippians 1, Philippi was located in northern Greece, and it was the first colony in Europe that heard the gospel. This was, it, Philippi was considered a Roman colony, which meant this, that, that even though that, that the Romans had conquered it and they had settled it, in fact, what happened is, as soldiers in the Roman army got older, they would, uh, the Roman government would provide places for them to live. Um, and so they were very nationalistic because they had fought for Rome. But Philippi was one of those Roman colonies that they settled, and it was filled with a lot of former Roman soldiers. So they were very nationalistic for Rome. They were very loyal to the emperor. And when you say a Roman colony, it wasn't just like it was an outskirt. This was like being in Rome itself. It was considered as important as Rome. And so this was a, a difficult place for the gospel to reach because there were people there that were, that were very loyal to the emperor as supreme. And Paul comes along and he begins preaching the gospel in Philippi. And he says, there's somebody else who you should kneel to. There's a higher power than the emperor. There's a stronger, there's a stronger um, power and force than just the emperor supreme. And that is, is God himself. And that caused some issues within Philippi. So Paul is writing to them and he's encouraging them. And he's telling them that, that, that they are to keep on keeping on. In Paul's day, there, he was writing from prison. There was no prison cafeteria. He was totally dependent on his family and friends to provide food. And the people at Philippi had partnered with Paul. In fact, this whole letter has to do with this idea of partnership. The idea is uh, sometimes translated as fellowship when we read our Bibles. But it has a very practical outworking in Paul's life. It's not like they just talked to him a lot. It meant that they had a relationship with him. They actually sent to him people and things and, and supplied for his food and his daily needs. And this is why Paul calls them partners in the gospel in, in verse 5 of chapter 1 and partners in grace in verse 7. They are in the gospel business and in the grace business along with Paul. Therefore, Paul says, I am confident in you, Philippi. I am confident because, as one author puts it, he knows that when the gospel message of King Jesus does its life-changing work in the hearts of people, this isn't just a flash-in-the-pan religious experience that might fade away with the passing of time. Because if there is genuine faith in the risen Jesus, if there is genuine loyalty to him as king, this can only be because the living God has worked through the gospel within people's hearts and what God begins, God always finishes. So Paul is writing to these people and he loves them. He says, I know the gospel has radically transformed you and I know God's gonna continue to do this. So continue to partner with me. Give me your, your life. With this confidence, Paul then looks forward with hope and he lays out what is his highest purpose. And, he, and by doing so, he calls us to follow in his footsteps. Let's look at Philippians 1 starting in uh, verse 8. Really, we're going to get to the end of verse 18, but we'll start at the beginning of verse 18. He says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that this shall turn out to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. What sh- yet what shall I choose? I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance of joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul declares in this passage that Jesus is the greatest treasure in life. So live and die for him. And here's the reality, folks. Every, every one of us will walk out of here today and will either live and die for Christ or you will live and you will die for lesser treasures. Every single one of us today is going to walk out these doors and we're going to make a decision to, to live and die for Christ or we're going to live and die for lesser treasures. So, so what does your life reveal that you value? How do you think about life? How do you think about death? These questions reveal much about our purpose in life. And just like those things we talked about at the beginning, those sports figures or our musician, they have to dedicate themselves to that craft, so must we give our life, our way of life and our way of death for Christ. So let's see what this looks like. The first thing he says is this, you must magnify Christ in your body if you were to live life for him. Magnify him in your body. Paul says that it is his eager expectation that Christ will be honored in his body. There is the, his purpose statement in life. This statement shapes the way that Paul views and, and approaches everything in life. The word honors, honored means to declare great, or literally, we get the word, what I'm using, magnify, it means to enlarge. We all know what that looks like. Have you ever played with a magnifying glass as a kid or as an adult, or maybe you use it um, to read or things like that? It takes what is small and, and, and enlarges it. It makes it look big. Paul says that he wants Christ, if we apply that here, to, to be made large in his body. He says, I want my life, when I walk around and as I interact with people, I want Christ to be made to look amazing, large, as I, as I live my life. And then Paul says that he wants, um, that this is his eager expectation that this would happen in his life. This is an interesting word that is only used one other time in the Bible. It has the idea of watching with an outstretched head. It's like, the, like maybe you've you, you got your, your little kids and you go to a parade or you go to, to some kind of event and they're standing at the back and they're on their tiptoes and their neck is outstretched and they're, they're trying to peek across the crowd to see what's going on. That is the idea of eager expectation. Paul says, that is, I am anticipating with excitement the fact that Christ is going to be honored in my life. Paul's confidence or courage is so strong as he awaits his trial. But I want you to notice, however, that his primary concern is not the trial itself or even the verdict, 
but in the fact that Christ is magnified in his life. Whatever the outcome, Paul says glory has to come to God first. You see, Paul was standing trial. He was about to go to trial, and he says, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I don't know about you. I've never been in that situation. I don't know if you have. You have an interesting life if you have. Maybe we should talk. I'd love to hear your story. But I've never been in the, in the situation where I'm like, I'm on trial for, for something that is not bad, but, uh, but for, for the glory of God, for something that I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm going to face a possible verdict which could end in my death or my freedom, and yet my worry in that moment would not be about the glory of God like Paul's would at times, sadly. I hope it would be. But Paul says, no, my one concern is not the verdict. My one concern is this. I need to catch up on my slides here. I'm sorry. Um, we're going to go right there. Yeah, there we go. So magnifying Christ in my body. Because for Paul, he says this, life is Christ. Life is Christ. Let's follow the logic of this verse. Paul says that he wants Christ to be magnified by life or by death. And then in verse 21, he tells us why. And in verse 22 through 24, he tells us how. So the why of life is found in verse 21. Look at it with me again. For me to live is Christ. It's a simple statement. The idea is this. Paul was constantly adding up life. He was what some have called a theological mathematician. And he was looking at all that life had to offer and holding it up into comparison to everything else. And one author said it this way. He said, his whole life may be summed up as the progressive abandonment of everything else in the interest of possessing more of Christ. Paul's looking at life. In fact, he gets into this later in in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, here's all the good things in my life, all the things I've attained. Paul was like a Christian Christian, a super Christian, if you want to call him that. And he says, all those things, they're awesome. But I don't hold on to those things as having value compared to this one thing. When I was was in high school, my mom and dad, we finally opened my first bank account. It was a big day, right? Got to open a checking account. And they took me to the bank and I got this checkbook. And in the back of that checkbook, there's a thing called a ledger, right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of these kids have no idea what I'm talking about because no one writes checks anymore. But, uh, but, but for some of us, we know. And, and, and you had to balance that, right? You had your income, and you had your balance, and then everything was subtracted from that so that you could actually have an accurate assessment of what you had. And so you had an expense column, an income, co- income column, and hopefully that expense column did not supersede the income column. That was the goal, right? Paul says, I, I look at all of my life, and I do that with everything in, in my life. And I say, I, he said, I look over here at everything that life has to offer. And and folks, the world has lots of things it wants to offer you. Lots of things that are attractive. Lots of things, just even even being comfortable, right? I just want to live a comfortable life. It could be family. These These are not bad things. These could be good things. But Paul says, I'm constantly adding these up and comparing them to the worth of Christ. And you know what I have found every time? That Christ is better. Christ is what I need to live my life for. Why would Christ be magnified in Paul's body? Because Christ was better than anything to Paul. He says in verse 22, the how. That if he were to live, he says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. And then he says, um, 
Later that he says, nevertheless, in verse 24, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And so Paul says, this is why, this is, this is the how Christ is going to be magnified. Because if, I, if God grants me life through this, then my life is going to be spent in ministry to you. So his fruitful labor that he's staying alive for is his labor to increase the joy and the faith of the Philippians. If they have a greater joy by embracing Jesus, that is, believing in Jesus by faith, Jesus is made to look more magnificent. If this happens, Paul's life is achieving the purpose he laid out for us in verse 20. So your joy of your faith in Jesus is, is the fruit of his labor, he says. And that fruit makes Christ look great. And that's what it means for me to live as Christ. Folks, let me ask you this today. Are you there? Are you convinced that Christ is really worth it? You may say that he is. But let me ask you, does your life reflect it? Is it your eager expectation and confidence that God is going to make be made to look great in your life. Paul saw his life as participating in the life of Christ, in the story of Jesus. Everything happened to Paul, everything that happened to Paul was an opportunity for him to live out Christ. And he saw it that way. This is an opportunity for me to, to live the Christ life. This took the form in Paul's life of living in such a way that others' joy in Christ was made more abundant. And let me ask you this, is that the purpose of your life? Do you live in such a way that others find their satisfaction and greatest treasure in Christ? Uh, people, people matter. And people matter to God. And people matter to Paul. His heartbeat was not simply a pious personal pursuit of God, but living, breathing desire to see God become great in the lives of others. Because ultimately, Paul believed God deserved glory and that created beings experience true joy only when God is the ultimate treasure of their lives. Our world today has a lot of distractions that pull us from this goal. And you know what, folks? Some of us, some of you parents need to put down your phones and pursue your kids' highest joy in Christ. Some of you husbands need to set aside the busyness of work for a moment or the distraction of the game or, or, or whatever it is. And you need to spend that time pursuing the joy of your wife in Christ and her greatest joy. Some of you young people, you need to stop seeing life as, as just um, a big playground for you to, to go out and, and, and experience all these different things and start asking yourself, am I convinced that God is real and worth living for? And if he is, he demands my all right now. Listen, our, I'm a youth pastor, right? I speak to a lot to the young people. But there, there are so many distractions in our kids' lives. So many voices clamoring for their attention. And, and, and Pastor Andrew could get up here, and I know he faithfully exposits the word every Sunday. And I know that they're involved, and there's Bible studies and things that you're doing within this church community. But do you realize that the devices that we hand to our young people are indoctrinating them 24-7 and, and, how, 
God's word is powerful to overcome those things, but, but we live in a life of distraction. We live in a life that, that simply removes the, the hardship of, of focusing on ourselves and on our issues and on our sin and looking to the answer being Christ. And, and really, we can just kind of massage everything under the surface because we live in a life of distraction. I think sometimes we need to see our lives as pouring into the lives of others to pursue their greatest joy in Christ. I also think that we need to make sure we magnify Christ in our life. Let me ask you this, and this is a convicting question. Do the people who you bump into, the people that know you best, do they have a bigger view of God because they had a conversation with you? Because they know you? Does Christ look better and if your answer is, well, we didn't really get to that, or that didn't really come up, then maybe I'm living life in the wrong way. Because if I'm, one of our things, our, our, for our youth group, our, our shirts, we have shirts every year, and this year our, our shirt, our last couple of years, was convinced. It just has the word convinced on it. And, and, I, and I want them to wear it, because I want people to say, well, what are you convinced of? And guys, what's the answer? Okay, you didn't get any of that. They're tired, I told you. That God is real and that God is worth living for. Like, we are convinced of that. I want my young people in our youth group and our church and our families to say, I'm convinced that God is real. And why do we start there? Because if you're convinced that God is real, if you're convinced that the God of the Bible, the way he's described in Scripture, is real, then, then you're going to live for him. You're going to, you, there's not a, it's not a logical leap for you to say then he demands my, all my life. Um, Jacob, one of our young men, preached on this on, on Wednesday. He spoke on this very verse from Romans 12, 1 and 2. That if Christ is real and God is real, then he's worth giving all of my life for. It, does, it makes logical sense for me to pursue him. Folks, if there's more to life than just what we see around us, and there is, if heaven is real, and, and hell is real, and we're going one of those two places, and we are. And if God is all-powerful and all-loving and has made a way for you to know him through this gospel, and he has, then, man, it demands my all, my whole life. Not just my Sunday. Not just my Wednesday night. Not just the time I spend in his word and devotion, but my Everything. I have to weigh all of life through the lens of Scripture because that makes Christ look glorious. And I, not only do I do that myself, but then I go out and I pursue that joy in others. And you know who you need to pursue that joy in most? It's the people that attend Beaverton Baptist Church and the people who live around you because those are the people that God has placed in your life to pursue that joy with. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Paul didn't see life that way. Hey, this is good for me. I, this is what I do. I pursue my own personal walk with God, but, but I don't really do that with anybody else. Paul says, no, I, I, Christ will be magnified in my body because if, if I get out of this situation that I'm in, it's for your benefit. It's so I can come back and pursue the joy of God in you, Philippians. And so life is Christ. But the second part of this is dying is gain. So it's a crazy statement. Like, we are so familiar with this verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're like, oh, amen. Let's go home. That was Philippians. Um, we know that verse. But do you realize how radical that statement is? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No one says that in our world. 
No one views death as gain. You go ask anybody on the street that, that doesn't have the hope that you have, and you say, what do you think about death? I've done, I've done this. I, I remember specifically, a couple years ago, we had a, a couple attending our church, and um, they, they, we'd gone over there a few times to try to meet with them and talk with them, and I started asking questions about life and death like this, and, and I asked that question about death, and, and, and I remember the, 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 the wife vehemently opposed me, and she's like, I don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. Don't bring that up in my house. Because it was a scary thought for her, right? But yet, what leads a man like Paul to say that dying can be gain? Well, I think this concept of Christ being magnified in our, in our bodies is made even more real with the picture of death. The why of Christ being magnified in Paul's body is in verse 21, but the, the, um, where he says to die is gain. And further in verse 23, to depart, he sees, that he sees departing as being with Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 21 that to die is gain, because if you die, you are with Christ. You add up all the losses that death will cost you, your family, your job, your dream retirement, your friends, all the things that you leave behind, your favorite uh, pleasures in life, and then you add up all the losses and then you replace them with only the death of Christ. If when you do that, you can still joyfully say, gain, then Christ is being magnified even in your dying. Yeah, I don't know about you, um, but I've had the privilege of walking through the death of a believer right by their bedside. And there's nothing like it. It's one of the most sobering yet sorrowful yet joy-filled experiences. We have a, a man at our church. It's actually um, Ellie Bowen's grandpa. Um, so Ellie's with us here. And um, Ellie's grandpa worked at our church for, for years and years and years. Uh, Mr. Bowen. And we, he, was our, he was kind of our, our facility guy. Uh, Mr. Armstrong worked alongside of him in his final years here. And uh, he went home to be with the Lord this last year. And, and Mr. Bowen was one of those men like you... you if we had anybody come on the property to do any kind of work, that person did not leave that property without hearing the gospel because Mr. Bowen was sharing with them the gospel. He lived and breathed the gospel. And when he was in the hospital on his last few days, I went over there with the other pastors at our church to go visit him. And um, his, Ellie's dad, um, who was also a pastor at our church, and um, his, her, um, her uncles and stuff had come up, and we were all standing in the room. And I... I have never laughed so hard as I did in that room that day. And you say, that sounds totally bizarre, Pastor Eric. That sounds weird. No, because there was hope. But, but it, was, it was different. It was, it was this laughter, and then all of a sudden, everything would just get quiet for a moment. Everybody would stop laughing. And then we'd cry, and we'd sing a song, and then someone would say something again, and we'd start laughing again. There was it made Christ look glorious. That's what it looks like. That's what gain looks like. That's what, that made Jesus look glorious in those moments. It makes Christ look magnified. Imagine a, a person who reaches the end of their life and all they could do in the, on their deathbed was cry out about what they were losing. Their family, their friends, their, their success, their job. That doesn't make Christ look glorious. 
But when someone reaches the end of their life and there's that peace of saying, don't cry for me. I'm better off than all of you. That is what makes Christ look glorious. That death makes Christ look glorious. Are you ready to live and die for Christ like that? One, one famous preacher said it this way, Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious to you than all that life can give or death can take. You know, you know what's true about this? And I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to, we'll, we'll wrap it up here um, at the end here. I only got a little bit left, but do, do, how do you live life this way? How do I anticipate magnifying Christ in my life or in my death? And it's by doing this. I think you have to set these things apart ahead of time and say, I'm not going to place all my value on these things, but rather I'm going to place my value on Christ. That's what Paul did. Paul says, I'm setting these things aside in advance before they're taken away. Before, before these things are ever removed from my life, I'm going to count them as loss and I'm going to say this is worth more than all that life can give or take away. And this is why I think Paul does that because faith, your faith in Christ cannot be built in a moment. It has to be built now, before the trial, before the hardship, before these things that we value in life so much are removed from us. Sometimes permanently by death, but sometimes... Sometimes God takes these things away from us even, even while we're living. Let me ask you this question this morning. What, what would it take in your life for you to be crushed? What would you have to lose? And you say, I could lose this and this, but if God were to take that away from me, I don't know that I could make it. I, I, I think if God were to remove that, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your uh, money, maybe it's your family. I think even for me in my own life, that the answer to that question was if God were to ever remove my children, that would be unbearable. I would find that difficult. I'd find that crushing. But you know what? God says through Paul in Philippians 3 and here, he says, you know what? Is Christ more, is, more, is he more than enough for you even if that were to happen? Is Christ if, if, is Christ enough to help you survive those moments, even if all those things were ripped away? And folks, this is an exercise I think we have to do on a regular basis, is evaluate what we're clinging to, even the good things. There, there came a point a, a few years ago where I was reading through this passage and I thought, I need to make a list of those things in my life that I hold so dearly to me. And I want, to, I want to, on one side of that list, just write all the good things that I hold to. And on this side, I'm going to put in this category one thing. I'm going to put Christ. And then I'm going to pray that God would help Christ be greater than that first thing on my list, my family. That he would be a stronger desire in my life than that. That he would be a stronger desire in my life than the things that I hold so dearly in this life. And I just go through that list. Little did I know that God was going to test that in my life. Because about a year ago, February, and I think Pastor Andrew shared this with your church back when it happened, and I appreciate your prayers, but a year ago, February, my wife and kids, oh, my wife came to pick up our kids from our school, um, and, and they went out to do some errands. I didn't know where they were at. Um, they were out running errands, and, uh, and so we were just going through life like normal, and I, uh, 
I remember at one point I picked up the phone to call her and just to figure out where she's at. And we were talking on the phone and, and she was driving. And uh, all of a sudden, all I heard was honk, crash, and then the phone died. And I remember for the next five to ten minutes, I, I heard it. I knew it was bad from the sound. And I, I picked up the phone and I began to call as frantically as I could back the number and no one was answering. And there's a lot of thoughts that go through your head in those moments. Your, your mind tends to flee to, to worst case scenarios and all those things. And, and, I, and I couldn't find her. So I, I went down and I talked to a couple of the other pastors in our hall. And I said, guys, I think she was just in an accident. I don't know where she's at. We started calling some of our members who are police officers in the area to see if they were reporting accidents. Finally, I kept calling and, and someone answered the phone, but it wasn't my wife. And um, it scared me, right? And they, they said, hey, your, your family's in an accident. Your wife and daughter seem to be okay, but your son's injured. You need to get here. And they told me where they were, so I hopped in the car, and we, and we drive up there. And, uh, and, we, and we get there, and I beat the ambulance there and all of that. But um, as I ran up the side of the road, um, you know, there, there was the accident, and there was my son laying on the side of the road. Um, and the, the accident was, it was a terrible accident. The door of our, we had a Honda Odyssey, and... and and um, the door of that van was ripped off the van, and my son's seat, the actual seat of the car, was ejected into the rear of the vehicle. But um, when my wife turned around, all she saw was the open door and, and not my son. And she thought he was outside the car, and so she's running around trying to find him. And, and, and we get there, and as she, it was just an awful scene, right? And thankfully, um, there was some people on, on the side that, that helped out. Uh, there was a doctor's office right there, and he came out and, and, and helped. They loaded uh, my son in the ambulance, took him to the hospital, and, and miraculously, and I can't tell you how miraculously this is, there was no broken bones. There was no life-threatening injuries. He had to go into surgery that afternoon and uh, to do some internal things, but, but he's sitting in this room today. And only God can do that, Right? But here's, here's the reality. You cannot, you cannot choose in that moment that my life is going to be spent magnifying Christ and living and dying for him. Because in a split second like that, life can change. You can't, you can't look at what Paul's saying here and, and say, well, I'll do that someday. Or I'll get serious about God someday. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And in that moment, even if God had taken Carter home, God would still be good. And God would still be enough. And I think it goes all the way back to the exercise a couple years ago that I went through where I said, my family, as valuable, as important, and as devastating as that would be in my life, God, I want you to be more. I want you to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. God, I want you to be the one that, that is made to look great. I couldn't do that in that moment without having done it prior to that moment. Folks, maybe today, maybe you need to think about your life. And maybe you need to write a list like I did. And you need to mark that list out and say, here's everything that I hold valuable in my life all the good things and then put Christ on the other side of the page and work through that prayer list and say, Christ, 
would you be magnified in my life to a greater extent than even my, my, my children, my wife, my home, my job, my retirement, my car, my whatever it is. You put it, you fill in the blank. Because I know your pastor is week in and week out standing in this pulpit pointing you to Christ. He wants you to see him as glorious. And I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll tell you this because I'm not him. Um, it, it's, 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 it's tough as a pastor sometimes because you want people to see Christ as glorious and when you see them, we see them living for lesser treasures, it breaks your heart. I went to the Grand Canyon one time and as I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, what, what do you do when you see something like that? What do you do when you see something as magnificent as that? You know what you do? You stare at it. It's what you do. You look at it. I mean, literally, you could stand there for hours and just gaze at the magnificence. Did that make sense? Did that come out right? Magnificence, sorry, uh, of, that, of that great, beautiful wonder. But you know what? I, you know, I could imagine taking some of the teenagers there and I, I could just imagine there's probably someone in our group who would be like, I'd be like, guys, look at the Grand Canyon. And they'd be like, Pastor Eric, look at this rock I found on the ground. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, no, no, Pastor Eric, I've never seen a rock like this. I've never seen one like this. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking and I'm saying, would you just look at the Grand Canyon? Put down your little rock and gaze at the Grand Canyon. Stop being distracted by these little stones lying on the ground and look at it. Folks, that's what your pastor wants you to do today. It's what Jesus wants you to do today. Put down the rock. Because everything on this side of the list is a little rock. And God's the Grand Canyon. And would we put it down and would we just look at him? That's what we need to do. That's what we need to live for. All right? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Let's magnify Christ today in our life and in our death. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we want to live our life in all of our might, in all of our time, in all of our energy in living for you. God, we want to give our all for him who gave his all on the cross to bring us rebels to his side. And so, Lord, even as the song, uh, a song goes that, that we didn't sing, but, Lord, one that's uh, impacted my life, the, the, the chorus goes, Lord, help me use my fleeting breath to honor you through life and death. And when my heart drums its last beat, I'll lay my labors at your feet. So, Lord, help us to live that kind of life. Help us to realizing that to die is, is gain, to, to, to wake up in your presence and never fear again. God, let us live for you. Help us to live a life that magnifies you. May this be the purpose statement of our life like it was for Paul's. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.